and welcome to the Hopeful Influence podcast, a place uh, we, where we make space uh, for hope-filled leadership. And uh, welcome to this new series, uh, series three of the podcast, where Ooh. we're going to be discussing uh, Hopeful Influence again, uh, but uh, AI, artificial intelligence. And my name is Matt, uh, and we have Jude with us again. Hi, Jude. Are you okay? Hey, Matt. Yes, I'm good. Thank you. Kind of sort of slowly waking up here, but yeah, all good. All good. That's right. You, you pick early records for us every time, or maybe it's just early for me, but... Uh, it always feels quite early, but there we go. So waking up here, uh, and we have a really special guest with us, don't we, Jude? And we, we have we have Eve Paul, who's going to be with us for this series, um, and we're going to get to know uh, more from Eve as we go on through the podcast. But Eve, it's it's so wonderful to have you uh, with us, and uh, I don't know if this is early for you, like it's early for us, but it's so good to have you with us. Ah, it's great for you. All the way from Edinburgh, where it's a nice sunny morning and I can just see the girls disappearing off to school at the front door. <laughs> Love that. Come on. Love that. So, Jude, could you give us a bit of a, um, as we begin this series again, as we kind of, um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I need a refresher again, uh, just on that hopeful influence thing and where we've been and what we're, what we're really talking about when we think about hopeful influence. Could, so could you just give us... Um, just a refresh on that Great. thing again. Will do, will do. Fantastic. So hopeful influence. So we're thinking um, about uh, leadership and particularly Christian leadership and trying to get a kind of handle on a theology uh, of Christian leadership. And I, I guess kind of, um, uh, you know, we're saying really that, that that leadership as an activity is something for everybody. Uh, and it's about how we express our influence on, on others. And in a sense, nothing, nothing new uh, there. Um, but kind of um, as we think particularly about Christian uh, leadership, really we're thinking about uh, influence that helps people uh, ultimately move closer to God. And, um, you know, we have a sort of overarching um, a theology understanding, don't we, that, uh, you know, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Uh, the King has come. He is renewing all things and uh, drawing people to himself. But, but the vision of the kingdom, the horizon of the kingdom is, 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 includes all of creation. You know, in every sphere of life. And, and so God is concerned about all things. He's concerned about uh, the shape of our, 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 our humanity, our shared life together, how we express our work, how we live in community with one another, uh, how we steward the environment, uh, the animal kingdom, you know, everything. You know, Jesus is Lord of all. And, and so as Christian people, we're, we're invited, I think, to, um, to help others. Um, move closer into that kingdom, into the place, into the kind of life where, where Jesus is, is Lord, where that's being expressed and worked out. And uh, in the book, Hopeful Influence, we kind of look at three dimensions to that. So um, helping other people see the kingdom. So that's something about vision. What does what is a God-shaped future? What does more of God look like? More of God's work, activity, presence look like in your sphere of activity, you know, whether that's in the church or in your office space or you know, down your street or, um, you know, whatever, wherever. What, what does that look like? What does it look like to see, to get a clearer vision uh, of, of God's um, of God's increasing uh, kingdom in that space? How do we help other people see? How do we help, help other people participate? Let's kind of join in, um, you know, make it more of a reality, uh, that, that sort of, um, you know, more of the kingdom, a reality in, in that space. And thirdly, how do we help people experience it? So as we travel uh, together we we are invited aren't we to experience more of god's goodness and that's not to say that 
yeah, the Christian life is a ever increasing, um, <laughs> you know, uh, experiential, uh, joyful thing because there are challenges and pains and, and, and brokenness, you know, woven into our human experience. But as we travel uh, closer to God, we experience God's, um, you know, sustaining presence and power through the Holy Spirit, and we experience some of the goodness of a life better ordered uh, as it should be um, under God. So, so moving from the world as it is to the world as it should be. That's that's part of our Christian journey and helping other people, expressing leadership influence uh, to move there too, is part of what it means to be Christians in the world. So so that's the kind of overarching um, thing, I guess. And we're, we've applied that in the other series to different uh, spheres of life and, and, and what that looks like in different contexts. Uh, and to thinking about artificial intelligence, aren't we? And, and this particular technology and, and, and how we as Christian people Think well about that, and how does that that fit in with this movement, this advance of the kingdom of God? What sort of things should we be contending for? How do we talk well about it? How do we stay informed? Uh, all of those things. Um, <laughs> and that's why we need an expert to help us. So, Eve Paul, woo! <laughs> <laughs> and Eve, you are you are our expert on this, and you've you've got this book, uh, Robot Souls. We've all got a copy in front of us uh, here. <laughs> <laughs> ready for us, filled with notes, I'm sure, uh, to to guide us through. But, but where, where did this uh, come from, this idea of uh, writing this book and and just your a bit of your experience and where you've come from uh, in this? What, what, what was that about? Where did that come from? Well, it, it's sort of, um, I, I suppose if I was going to find a moment where this, this book had to be written, it was when I was sitting on the beach in North Berwick, and uh, not very far from Edinburgh, um, with my twin girls, and they were doing what children do on beaches. They were pottering around, digging holes and making sandcastles and splashing in the shallows, and lots of other children were there too. And I was looking around at this lovely scene, and I looked behind me to North Berwick Law, which is a huge old volcano behind us, and uh, they had found a, a, an Iron Age fort there, so I thought, gosh, you know, this picture has not changed for thousands of years. Those little children were also running around in the shallows and digging holes and building things in the sand. And I then suddenly had a rather chilling thought about what the beach might look like in a thousand years. And I thought, I wonder if there will be any children here, because actually the narrative we're in at the moment, where it is all about evolution as improvement, actually maybe we don't need to be here anymore because robots don't need childhoods. And if the idea is that uh, our ultimate perfection lies in becoming robots, then there will be no more children on beaches. And I felt really upset by that. <laughs> I thought, mm. I wonder if there is anything special and precious about us, because as a Christian, of course, I think there is. But that's not a very common narrative in the debate about this in public policy. So I thought, I, I need to write a book partly as a contribution to debate, but also partly to try and figure out for myself, really, what, what I think we're here for. Um, because actually this is a, an existential threat, the um, invention of AI, in a way that other technologies and tools haven't been. Because in the past, we've made those to help us make jobs easier or make our lives more comfortable, but we've not actually set about deliberately designing something that could replace us. So I think we are in a different situation now. Mm -hmm. that, that's so interesting, isn't it? And so well, 
in terms of like what what AI is for people who um, are quite new to that thought process and and thinking about the difference between all the technology that we've had and artificial intelligence. What what is it that we need to know um, about it and how it's different? Well, I think one thing to say is that it's part of a very long journey we've always been on in that we have always sought to um, kind of, uh, almost, uh, because artificial intelligence is this copying, it's just trying to figure out is there a way that we can kind of um, have other things do human-like activities. Um, and, of course, in the past, that's why we had tools to extend our limbs and, you know, spectacles to enhance our eyesight and um, prosthetics for those who have lost limbs. And, you know, we have we have extended ourselves before, we've augmented ourselves before. Um, the copying of intelligence, though, is a bit newer. We, we have done that in other ways. So for instance, we we learn how to write and the the externalizing of that, of, of, of words and speech and all of that kind of thing, changed the way our brains work. So we're no longer able to recite the whole of, you know, Homer <laughs> because mm. it, it, it changes the way you operate when you can externalize that. In the same way that when we invented the notation of the music, we stopped being able to remember and and in fact perform in the same way when there was more flexibility in how we understood music before it was captured into a scheme. So it's not that it is entirely new, but what's new about this is that we are hell-bent on trying to replicate our brains and improve them such that our brains would then become secondary or obsolete or certainly less useful or, or whatever. So this feels qualitatively different. Um, it's also of interest, I think, when you're thinking about definitions to understand what it is we're copying. Because I started by talking about tools and prosthetics and spectacles and things. And of course, one way this could have gone would be about replicating bodies, um, replicating humans in their bodily form. And of course, we did try that and um, most disastrously through eugenics in the Second World War. And when it emerged, what was being done, we were absolutely horrified. The idea there might be cloning and euthanization of, you know, deficient forms of humanity and the prioritization of the, the master race, however you construct that, was absolutely chilling. So the international community started laying down red lines about what was okay and what wasn't okay on that. So that became a bit of a busted flush, if you like. So you know, we do that in medicine about about healing, but we no longer think about, um, you know, cloning and, and perfecting physical bodies. So instead, we have put all of that effort into copying thought because we had thought that was less ethically compromising. <laughs> so first, a warning flare going up there that that's a, a, probably not a safe assumption to make. Also, we thought it was copyable. Um, because with the Enlightenment and the way that philosophy was going, we were quite clear that there was such a thing as a train of thought. And if you have a train of thought, you have a process that you can copy because you can have something that goes sort of beginning, middle, end, um, a, a bit like something that you could then code into a machine. And when we started thinking about thought as computation, it became a no-brainer to sort of turn thinking into computing uh, in the way that, that AI has now progressed. 
Um, and then when you spot that that doesn't just need to be about numbers and thoughts, it can be things about weaving and music and a whole load of other enterprises, then, of course, you can have artificial intelligence that can do anything, uh, which is increasingly what we're up to these days. So, it, so it's part of a very long story and a very complex story, but it means that we are in a situation now where we have rushed ahead on this quite arrogant um, path, that, that we, this assumption that we could just copy human intelligence. Um, and we haven't really uh, had an exit strategy about that. We've not really thought very carefully about where this might go. And we also haven't really been noticing how very deficient that is as an enterprise. Mm-hmm. Can I chuck a quick thing in on that, Matt, too? The, um, yeah. I, uh, so uh, in a former life, as it were, when I, <laughs> when I graduated, so I did physics and maths at university, and I ended up working for um, uh, British Gas uh, Research and Development in my kind of um, coming out of my master's for a bit. And, and one of the projects that I worked on was um, using uh, a neural network, uh, artificial intelligence, to improve the gas demand forecasting. So we had lots of different sort of mathematical models that were, we're trying to uh, work out at different times of the day and different times of the week and different times of the month and year, etc. What kind of gas demands might be coming? Uh, and, and of course, that was really uh, helpful to know because that influenced um, how much gas they needed to put into the system and how much they needed to store in different places around the country, which all has cost. You know, if you're storing gas, there's a significant cost uh, involved. And so... Um, you know, so it was all about, you know, um, that then fed into bottom line profit and all, all the rest of it. So um, it's a relatively simple kind of initial application because, you know, the underlying technologies, you're sort of modeling the, the neural pathways that, that you're pushing data, the neural pathways and, and you know, inputs and outputs. And the, and, the, and the system is basically learning. It's a learning system from, from, from the patterns of the data that you're pushing into coming out. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it's relatively... Um, uh, effective, you know, in, the, in those kind of early days. And, and I think one of the sort of underlying questions that people are kicking around is, is it that, because that application seems perfectly reasonable, isn't it? You know, why wouldn't you use a, a better you know, computer program to, to reduce cost, you know, for a large gas supplier? I mean, that sort of, you know, um, seems more really simple. And, and actually, in terms of the kingdom of God stuff, you know, we shouldn't be wasting energy and, and finance storing large amounts of gas. We we want to know how much gas is coming, you know. So it feels like a king, even you know, I'd even say a kingdom of God thing. We don't want to waste resources storing stuff um, in ways that we don't have to. So let's use, let's apply, let's have an application of a particular particular technology to do that smarter. So we're not wasting resources. So that feels like a no brainer, you know, morally, you know, um, uh, technologically fine, easy. So I guess one of my questions for you, Eve, just as we're sort of teasing this thing out initially, is it is it that it's sort of the, is it just the application of this stuff of this this thing? Yeah, because you can you can make a smarter you can make a smarter artificial intelligence module, as it were, that's sort of able to process data in um, uh, you know in, in smarter ways. So is it just about how we apply that? Are we talking about application, or is there something inherent in what we're beginning to produce and construct? Well, I think it's absolutely both. Um, and, and here's an example. So um, the robotics lab at Columbia, um, Hod Lipson's lab, very famous, very groundbreaking. Um, one thing that they've been looking into is how do you create the sorts of machines 
like Mars rover type machines, that if they were on Mars or somewhere else, if a, a meteor knocked out one of their legs, could they self-repair because you're not going to be able to get out there anytime soon to fix them and it's a lot of technology to you know fall off the planet if the wrong a comet hits at the wrong time so in service of that um they had got uh a few years back now a, a kind of walker robot which was just four limbs it looked a bit like you know thing of the adams family um and they it was literally just these sort of four limbs and it had just been given some incredibly rudimentary programming that just basically said learn to walk over there so it had to figure this out from scratch because they also wanted to see you know how can this thing learn how to learn so they um sort of put it in this pen and watched it and it, it took three or four days and it was just kind of flopping about you know and eventually it figured out how to get up and then it figured out how to manipulate these legs and then it figured out how to walk over to the other side of the room so to test the kind of Mars rover type scenario they pulled it back to the start and ripped a leg off to see if it could walk with three so again it flops about a bit and takes a while but eventually it figures out how to kind of limp across on three legs to the other side so they think, right, well, this is a, a good wheeze. Let's get, let's prep this for a kind of demo. So they do a kind of posh one and they get all of the analysis done and they're checking out what the neural nets have actually been up to. Um, and to their amazement, they discover when they analyze it that this thing had purposed an entire neural net to read their facial expressions. And they were a bit alarmed by this because they hadn't, you know, where else did that come from? You know, that hadn't been an instruction. That hadn't been a... I mean, why would you even do that? And of course, when you think about it, it's really sensible because when you're a toddler and you're learning how to walk, of course, you've also got people standing around you watching and going, oh, no, and don't go there and, and giving you loads of feedback. And of course, that is vital for your learning. So this very basic, incredibly simple robot, not even a very sophisticated AI that can play chess or you know, do protein folding, had figured out that reading facial expressions was vital for its learning. So well, do you think, just, just I'm so interested, was it, do you think that was the highest degree of change in its exterior visualisation? Was that the thing, do you think? I think so. And I mean, what, what Hod Lipson and the team have done, have figured out that in order to manipulate yourself in 3D, you have to develop some kind of spatial awareness obviously, to figure out where your limbs begin and end and how right, you manipulate right. them. Uh, and part of that would also be taking other data from your environment, like facial expressions, to kind of steer you. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but of course, they think that's probably also why things like consciousness may have emerged, because as we are 3D creatures, you know, made in a physical body rather than just being a mind. Uh, I mean, you see this with your own children. The second they get mobile, their learning shoots up. Um, because actually our learning is fundamentally part of our physical being. Um, so it's no wonder that now robotics is suddenly going bananas because actually the bodies are forcing the brains to work harder. That's making AI accelerate because, of course, AI had just been a load of algorithms in a, in a, in a tin can before. Yeah, you know, not even yeah. that, just been programs on a computer. And it's actually when it's embodied that it starts accelerating. So even though, again, a bit like, your um, gas management systems it was a very sensible idea just to figure out could a robot self-heal on a distant planet the problem is when you start figuring out how do you create learning from scratch how do you create things that can learn how to learn you start maybe accidentally or deliberately giving an ai free will 
And that's the thing I think we have not thought about um, because we spend a lot of time in the trade, in the church, thinking about free will as an incredible and extraordinary gift from God, but my goodness, what a dangerous one. And the point of church is, is to try and control that um, because of sin and to try and keep us all together in community to try and make sure that we don't abuse that gift because it is so extraordinarily dangerous. With the AIs, we haven't really thought of any way to try and trammel that apart from now having lots of open letters and panic attacks about regulation. Right, right. And sort of almost like a hard-coded... Um you know, turn-offs, you know, um, <clears throat> under certain scenarios or kind of... Um, you yeah, know. the thing about the switch-off strategy, what happens if you have, in the service of the learning, told the AI that it can reprogram itself at will in order to meet its objectives? Um, mm. Because, and essentially that's why there is a conference on Frontier AI coming up in the UK. That's why the UN and the European legislation is very concerned about cognitive robots because the second you allow them to self-program, you lose control. Um, so the thing about your algorithms that helped with, with gas analysis is there was essentially a, a, per, a parameter around that. Um, right. It was very rules-based and you therefore could switch it off. And it was only as good as its programming, of course. And it's just about garbage in, garbage out. And we know from all the other algorithms that we're panicking about that, you know, you've got to worry about training data, you've got to worry about bias, and you've got to worry about unintended consequences. But they are ultimately controllable, even if it's complex. The problem about an AI that you have given free will to, effectively, is you can no longer control it, by definition. And what okay. are you going to do about that? Okay, brilliant. So, so in response to that initial question about is it application or is it something inherent to AI, you're saying it's both. You're saying, I mean, clearly there's, you know, there, there's uh, in terms of the purely the application point of view, you know, things like you know making a Mars rover fix, Mars rover fix itself or managing gas demand. There, there's you, you, there's there's moral ethical paradigms around that around that application, which are probably different from you know the um, the warhead, you know that kind of. Um, you know, searches for somebody's face and, you know, or, or whatever, you know, so there's, there's, there's moral and ethical questions around the particular application of this technology. But as well as that, there's something intrinsic to the technology that we're creating, which is a, particularly around this, this self-learning um, um, uh, concept where, where we're, we're beginning to engineer in, program in free will, uh, and that creates a new sort of ethical and moral question around the technology. Absolutely. Really helpful, really helpful. Can I, I just, just while this is there, can I just do a quick aside? The, thing, the point you made about the, um, the learning in 3D, I mean, that is, I, I mean, I just want to think about that, you know, a bit, a fair bit, because, because is, you know, the, theologically, we want to say, don't we, that full humanity, you know, is not disembodied, spirits floating on a cloud that is not the hope the christian hope is not that we will end up you know in some disembodied state you know orbiting the, the sort of spiritual throne of god actually the, the hope from revelation 21 and actually throughout you know in, in pieces throughout the kind of biblical narrative is for, for new heavens and new earth and just as jesus himself was was resurrected with a new human body you know our our, our hope for, for for full humanity is fully human fully physically uh, human selves, um, uh, you know, living in community together. And so there's something about the the fully human bit that, as you rightly say, is both, 
you know, intellectual and spiritual and, you know, mental, emotional, but also physical. And, and almost as, you, as it begin, becomes physical, it becomes most full, fully uh, itself. And, and um, maybe that's a thought we need to come back to when we think about how uh, the, the, the physical dimensions of, of <laughs> what we're creating and, and of the, that parameters in which AI systems can learn. And I think that's where the Christian population can be incredibly helpful because God chose a human body for Jesus. God didn't send some disembodied angel or some voice or some, you know, he'd done that through burning bushes and all kind of stuff before, but this time he chose a person, a physical human being. Mm. And I think that because it was, of course, hugely difficult ethically with eugenics and all that stuff to, you know, but it was also because we have become very, very partial to our intellectual life. You know, post-enlightenment, it was all about rationality and thought. So that seems to be the best of us. So we'll copy that bit. Not all this kind of rubbish body stuff, which is really difficult and gets ill and dies. And, you, you know, is you know, the thing that might be eternal is probably our thought processes if we can bung them into a machine. So, again, there's been a bias in this whole debate away from bodies for some good and some bad reasons. And because... Christians have a very embodied faith, there is something about saying, well, look, we know that even the brain isn't where all our intelligence resides. We know there's bits of brain in our guts and all over our bodies. We know there's a huge amount of wisdom throughout our flesh. Um, and actually, what are we doing about that? Where are we taking that into account? Um, because at the moment, it is taking a very, very narrow articulation of what it might yeah. to be intelligent and trying to copy that. Fantastic. So great to hear from Eve there. Uh, as we get started and we kick off season three of the Hopeful Influence podcast, and I don't know about you, but for me, that was just such a great eye-opener uh, in my head before doing this episode. I kind of wondered whether uh, I knew anything about AI other than the film iRobot or uh, something similar to that, or something that I might find on TikTok. So um, it's so good to think about how that works in our life, what it looks like for us, and what it may look like in the future for us, and why it is important for us to grasp that as we think about hopeful influence. There will be another episode out soon, and so we really look forward to uh, really going deeper on this topic. But we hope you have a great week from this point onwards. Uh, and yeah we're praying for you wherever you are so god bless and see you soon